Well, thanks, everybody, and thank you for that welcome. It's, it's really cool to be here because of that history. And when Raina and I um, first came before kids, uh, which would have been 16 years ago, uh, we were just starting out, ponytail, big bushy beard. I was a rabbinical intern, <laughs> and New Hope showed us a lot of love and uh, really helped us get, get going in the ministry and things like that. So now we have seven children, and uh, our oldest is 14. Um, I, our, we have Aviva's here. She's 12, and she's about to have her bat mitzvah, you know, in our coming up this year. And uh, some of the other kids are downstairs, too. We have to divide and conquer these days, uh, <laughs> you know, when we come out. So anyway, I, I just appreciate your support for um, our Messianic Church ministry over the years, and it, it really makes a big difference, and it's just a big encouragement. Um, for, for any of you guys who are new, uh, you know, Messianic Judaism is a... Uh, 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 we like to consider ourselves an awakening of Jewish Yeshua faith, a uh, movement of Jews who believe that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Messiah. We call him Yeshua, uh, which is just Jesus in his Hebrew name. So I'll be using Yeshua today uh, as we interact together. And um, we're, we have a congregation, but even more than a congregation, we're building a movement. We're trying to build a, a movement of Judaism that embraces the Messiah and welcomes him home because, of course, Yeshua and the disciples were all Jews, and uh, these go seamlessly together. So uh, what I want to do today is um, I'm not going to speak directly about Messianic Judaism. I want to speak about the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason is that I'm in the middle of a teaching series at our synagogue, and we're going through the Sermon on the Mount from a Jewish perspective and trying to take a look at you know, kind of reframe Yeshua's teachings within first century Jewish experience. And so what I thought I'd do is just start at the beginning, um, where we did in, in, in my series, I'm kind of in the middle, we just, uh, uh, we're in the, you have heard it said, but I say to you sections. And at the end, I have a little QR code. If you want to get to the YouTube list and kind of keep up with the series, you're welcome to do that. Uh, but let's start with the beginning. We'll start on the, uh, in the, in the Beatitudes section and see how far we get. Um, so, now, personally, I just want to preface this, that the Sermon on the Mount is very important to me and to my story. Uh, I've shared a few times here, I think, my story of coming to faith in Yeshua while hiking the Appalachian Trail from Maine to Georgia. And um, there's something I don't often share in that story, which is that after hiking through Maine and the mountains in New Hampshire, um, I had gotten into the, uh, the, the White Mountain area and I got sick and spent a few days sitting by this stream. And I opened up a Bible that had been given to me and read the Sermon on the Mount for the first time in the woods. And the, my experience was that the words sort of lifted off the page and like came inside of me and came inside of my soul, a place that I didn't even know was there. And the following day, I continued to hike south. And... Um, then I was, it was in the evening, and I just had this, uh, I was alone in the woods, and, and I just felt Yeshua calling me, and I just said, yes, I will follow you, and they just filled me up and made me whole and changed, changed my whole life. So that's kind of the short story, but um, his, his presence, everything changed me from the inside, and, and what I experienced was it was as if like the kingdom of heaven was nearer, was closer, and the Sermon on the Mount was what started the beginning of that journey. 
And it's interesting, when Yeshua teaches about the kingdom of heaven, he doesn't teach about a distant land that's removed from the lives of the disciples. He fervently invites us to seek the kingdom of heaven with everything that we have here and now. So the way that we seek the kingdom of heaven is not through theological abstractions in the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's, it's in spite of what many people think, it's not found simply in a checklist of worthy deeds. Yeshua teaches that he is the entryway to the kingdom of heaven. And when we find him, the kingdom of heaven then begins within us right away. And then he shows us how to live that life here on earth. Now, the, the Sermon on the Mount was not originally called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Latin Vulgate in the 4th century first uses that name. And so Jewish commentator Amy Gillivine, in her commentary, she retitles the Sermon on the Mount, A Beginner's Guide to the Kingdom of Heaven. I like that. A Beginner's Guide to the Kingdom of Heaven. So let's put out the slide there. We'll just, I just have one slide with the verses that we'll be covering and, uh, in our translation. And let, let's jump in. Now, when Yeshua <clears throat> saw the crowds, we're in Matthew 5, he went up on the mountain. He found his place. His disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, and he began to teach. And here we come to the famous section that we call the Beatitudes, the, uh, the blesseds. Uh, these are called the Beatitudes because that's the Latin term for blessed. Um, usually, that's how they're translated. Probably in the Bibles you have here, it's blessed are the poor in spirit. But Matthew wrote in Greek. But Yeshua was not teaching in Greek. He was drawing from the Hebrew scriptures. And the Hebrew word here would be ashrei. Ashrei. Ashrei sort of means happy. Uh, he's drawing from a number of different passages. Isaiah 30, 18b. Ashrei are those who wait for the Lord. Happy are those who wait on the Lord. Uh, Psalm 84, 4. Ashrei are those who live in your house. Singing your praise, house would be the temple of the Lord. And so this is the theme that he's pulling off. Ashrei are the poor in spirit. Now, happy in English I, doesn't really capture what ashrei means, uh, and neither does blessed. Uh, a Messianic Jewish rabbi, uh, Russ Resnick, has a book called Divine Role Reversal, Divine Reversal, and the, it's about the transforming ethic of Yeshua in our lives. And he writes this, this scripture isn't speaking so much of a blessed future in the life to come or the ethereal blessedness of the super pious, but of the concrete happiness here and now through an active relationship with God. And Yeshua isn't describing some ideal state of sainthood or future reward, but the conditions under God's authority today, which we can experience if we have faith and vision to follow Yeshua. So he sees the ashray as the true happiness, of it like that, the true happiness. I think of it like a cup, a full cup inside, a, a sense of gladness and contentment and belonging and peace, a life that's characterized by joy. Ashrei is life in the kingdom of heaven. This is life in the kingdom of heaven. So at our synagogue, we've retitled these verses to the Ashrei of Messiah. The Ashrei of Messiah. Now, what these verses reveal is that life in Yeshua is Ashrei, even in the midst of the greatest difficulty and trial. So let's begin with poor in spirit. Ashrei, truly happy, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, in context, we need to remember that Yeshua is speaking directly to Jews about Jews. 
He was, that was the whole framework of what was happening in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's speaking mostly to a class of Jews called the Am Haaretz in the first century. The first century was very complex with many different kinds of Judaisms. And uh, the Am Haaretz were like the people of the land. They were a kind of broad category of Jewish people dispersed outside of Jerusalem in the Galilee. They were often uh, abused. They were poor. They were policed by Rome. They were oppressed with impossible taxes. It was a difficult life. We think of Pontius Pilate, who is recorded as having mixed the blood of the Galilean Amharites with their sacrifices. He wasn't a very nice guy. <laughs> Leave it at that. Now, we know from rabbinic texts um, that reflect back to the first century that the Amharites were despised by some of the temple leaders, the you know, certain groups of Pharisees. Pharisees were very complex. It's not like the Pharisees. There were many different groups of Pharisees, and some of them loved Yeshua, and some of them hated him. And Judaism was very complex. That's very important as we look into the political dynamics that's happening here. But, but there were groups of Jews who were like the religious elite that, that had control and power over the temple, and they were vying for authority, and they didn't like the Amharats. They didn't like that they were poor. They didn't like that uh, they, they reflected sort of a traditional, they were very observant Jews, but the, the Pharisees were like reformers. They were coming in and bringing new traditions that um, sometimes took the Galilean Jews away from God's laws in the Torah. So we think of Pharisees like they're like the strict Jews, and Yeshua's followers were not strict Jews. It wasn't that way. His followers were in some ways stricter than the Pharisees. It was that the Pharisees were putting on reformations um, that Yeshua interacts with. Another time, that's a, that's a whole other message to kind of unpack first century Judaism. But what's going on here is there's this tension that's happening. And so when, when Yeshua says, Ashrei are the poor in spirit, these leaders, Ashrei, is, are, they thought they were Ashrei. And Ashrei are the poor in spirit. His, his immediate hearers, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, would hear something remarkable, that, that God saw and validated the Amha'aretz, that, that he accepted who they were and that they had a very special place in his eyes. And it challenged the leaders uh, of Judea. Yeshua was not creating a new teaching for these Jews. He's pointing to the heart of what Judaism was really all about. He's pointing to the true way of Torah. And we find many teachings in Judaism throughout the centuries that are very similar to what Yeshua said here. He's drawing from Isaiah 61. Do you remember the passage where he shows up in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, in Nazareth, and he takes out the scroll of Isaiah and he reads from this passage, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. <clears throat> Yeshua is the one who brings good news to the poor. What is that good news? The good news is that they are ashray because they are inheriting the kingdom of heaven. Matthew is setting up a contrast here between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of the earth. In the kingdoms of the earth, the strong and the wealthy and those who are held in high esteem have already been rewarded for their power. This world is their world. But for the poor, the beaten down, the bedraggled, those who have no joy in this world, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The idea isn't that the kingdom of heaven is like a pie-in-the-sky uh, kind of platitude, that one day things will be better. I don't think that's what he's saying. He's saying that 
he's revealing an entirely different set of values and priorities that his disciples are to have in the world. Yeshua says later in the disciples' prayer, the Lord's Prayer, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not just a promise of eternal peace after death. It's a prescription for a new set of glasses, kingdom of heaven glasses, where Yeshua is inviting us to take off our own earthly glasses, which tend to be colored with greed and pride and run by the power struggles and oppression of the world and replace them with heavenly glasses so that we will see the world through the eyes of heaven. Being poor in spirit, then, isn't isn't about just about how much money a person has or doesn't have. It's not just about that. Amy Gillivine again writes, to be poor in spirit is not necessarily, excuse me, to be poor financially is not necessarily to be righteous. And if we hold this equation, then we end up romanticizing poverty rather than working to alleviate it. Nor for the Gospels is being rich synonymous with being evil. Rather, having wealth comes with the mandate to help others. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their dependence on others and others' dependence on them. They see each other through heaven's eyes. Yeshua's words are are not only an encouragement for those who are suffering when life is difficult, they are, they're also a mandate that we become agents of the kingdom of heaven ourselves, to be aware of our obligation to care for the poor, to care for the poor in spirit who are inheriting the kingdom of heaven. We should see them that way. Those who are suffering hardships, those who are brought low, those who are suffering, those who might depend on us. In Isaiah 57, 15, God says, I will dwell on high in holiness, yet also with the contrite and with the same Hebrew, poor in spirit. And the Hebrew here is uh, shepal ruach, the poor, the lowly in spirit, ruach is spirit. So to the world's systems, the broken and oppressed and humble people of the land are simply there for the strong and powerful to stand on and use. This was the case in Rome. Uh, This is the case today. But it's not so in the kingdom of heaven. In heaven, everything is flipped upside down. And God sees and values and has compassion on those who are weak. The pages of world history books are filled with this same story. It repeats itself over and over again. People desperately seeking happiness through power and through control, through money, through fame, through revenge. And those who are most successful in these pursuits are the ones who cause the wars of the world and cause destruction and cause slavery. And others who are less successful leave a wake of destruction in their past. But both never taste true ashray. So in the kingdom of heaven, true happiness does not come from these things. And actually, each one of the sayings in the ashray of Messiah, it reverses a common ideal of happiness to reveal the true source of happiness. The kingdom of heaven has radically different priorities. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to tell us what these priorities are. Follow the ways of the Jewish Torah. That's coming next. Always reconcile. Love your enemies. Forgive. Trust God. Give what you have. So we move on to the next ashray. Ashray are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So Yeshua continues to draw 
from the verses that he read aloud in the synagogue in his hometown. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And then he goes on, because he has anointed me to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland of, instead of ashes, an oil of gladness instead of mourning. So if you remember, Yeshua's original hearers are the Amharats. Uh, they're the poor, oppressed Jewish people of the land. They're familiar with suffering. They're very familiar with death. And they're familiar with loss. And to these people, to those who are so uh, acquainted with loss, these are the people whom Yeshua offers these words of comfort. In the kingdom of heaven, you are noticed. Your pain is not in vain. Your pain means something of great value. There are a lot of things that I love about being a rabbi. I, I, I couldn't list all of them, but there are some things, even though they're difficult, they're very special and very sacred. One of those roles of a rabbi or a pastor is to come alongside of people when they're mourning for a brief time or grieving, to carry a bit of the burden with them. Um, a mentor once told me that when you officiate at a funeral or sit with a family who's grieving, you don't just show up and leave, job done. You actually carry a small amount of that pain, perhaps for a time. You carry it with them. Because it's only for a time, I experience this sort of as a microcosm of the morning journey, comfort to <clears throat> morning to comfort journey. And so I need to go and, and to my prayer swing and spend time. And after a day or so, I can feel the Lord transforming that morning into comfort in his presence. This is a microcosm. It's nothing compared to the grief of those who have actually lost loved ones. Uh, and in Judaism, mourning rituals actually continue for a whole year. And then there are prayers that we do every year on the anniversary for the rest of life, uh, because mourning doesn't end in Judaism. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, we experience this in a small way, the, the process over a shorter time. And at the end, there's a, a sense of meaning in the transformation that happens from mourning to comfort. And in Judaism, it's beautiful that it, this has nothing to do with being a rabbi. Every Jew is called to be an agent for the kingdom of heaven, uh, to provide comfort for those who suffer, to carry each other's burdens for a time. And so if every Jew is called to do this in God's Torah, how much more so all of us who trust in Yeshua, who are brought into the, you know, in, come alongside the Jewish people. Yeshua's words are not just for the mourner to hear then. They're a call for us to give of ourselves to become those agents of the kingdom of heaven for those in our lives around us to carry each other's burdens and to actually pick up that burden and carry it for a time. This ashray is about hope for the stricken, hope for the sadness. At the same time, it speaks to deeper values that are in the kingdom of heaven. Sadness is an emotion that God has given us to tell us that we've lost something of great value. Mourning is an extended sadness, which tells us that we've genuinely treasured, genuinely valued someone whom God also treasures and values. So in a palpable way, the mourner has entered into life with God in a broken world. The mourner enters into life with God. This is the, this is the blessing, the happiness. Uh, going back to Amy Gillivine, uh, she says this well. In part, those who mourn are blessed because not everyone can mourn. To mourn is to say, I have loved this person and desperately miss this person. A heart that knows how to grieve is a heart that knows how to love. 
Mourning is a part of love in our broken world, on this side of heaven. And love is what the kingdom of heaven is made out of. So, mourning is a holy emotion. Not only because it reflects love, but also because it, it tears its robes. It screams at death. It isn't supposed to be this way. And I think it, it isn't supposed to be this way. God hates death more than we do. He hates death. And, and this is why Yeshua wept with Miriam when Lazarus was dead, even moments before he was about to resurrect him from the dead. See, mourning points us toward Yeshua because in Yeshua, death isn't the end of the story. Yeshua has conquered death. When Yeshua says to Miriam, I am the resurrection, I am the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, shall never live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Ashrei are those who mourn and look to him, for he will come and he will mourn with you. He will cry with you. And then when the time is right, he will wipe away your tears. Mourning goes, of course, beyond grieving the loss of a loved one. There are other reasons to grieve in the world, but the application is the same. Real comfort is found in Yeshua's arms. Live God's life. This is what Yeshua is saying. Draw near to him. Trust him. Look to him for everything because in him is hope. The hope that brings comfort and the hope that brings the ashray of the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> Let's touch on uh, ashray are the meek for they shall inherit the earth or have inherit the land. We'll talk about that. Now, theologians and thinkers have devoted pages and pages to defining meekness. What does meekness actually mean? Uh, <clears throat> the key is to go back to Yeshua's source. Yeshua is quoting from Psalm 37, 11. It reads, the wicked will be no more, but the meek shall inherit the land. Blessed are the meek who inherit the land. He's pulling up this psalm. And, and then psalm goes, and delights themselves in abundant peace. Shalom. So meek in Hebrew is, in this verse from the Psalms, the root of anan in Hebrew. And in this case, anan is presented as the opposite of wicked in the Psalms. So something in this word connotes righteousness. But there's more to it. Anan is the same word used to describe Moses in Numbers 12. Now the man Moses was very meek. Some translate it humble. More so than anyone else on the face of the earth. So Moses is anan, if we want to look for what that means. Poor in spirit refers more to the oppressed, to the abused, to the broken, while meek is something different. Moses was a great and a strong leader. Later in chapter 21, Matthew quotes from Zechariah using the same word. Actually, it's the, it's the word in the Greek Septuagint that also was used in this psalm. Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, meek from Anan, and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Of course, this is the prophecy of Yeshua coming into Jerusalem. Meekness, seen through the lens that Matthew's using, doesn't mean weak or insignificant. A meek person is a person with great authority, but a person with great authority who knows how to use his authority and doesn't lord it over others. Moses, though a great leader of all of Israel, was a servant to all, willing to give his own life for the people many times. Yeshua, our king, comes on a donkey, 
It's the picture of Philippians, too. Though existing in the form of God, he considered being equal to God not a thing to be grasped. So he humbled, Anon, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him. So this is, this is meekness. Matthew uses the same word to translate Yeshua's comforting words in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am Anon. I am meek and humble in heart. The idea is that Yeshua, though he has all of the power and the authority in the universe, in the cosmos, is available. He's compassionate and ready to enter into your experience of life. So we might say that meekness, the kind that inherits the land or the earth, means a person who knows his or her high status in the kingdom of heaven. And that means that you know how much you're loved. It means that you are cared for and protected by the great king. And because of that knowledge, you have little need to puff yourself up or to look out for the interest of your, your own interests above others. But instead, out of a full cup and out of your position of strength, you're available to others to meet the needs where you see them around, jumping in and serving and ready to listen and to be a support and to guide and to comfort the mourning and to help those who are poor in spirit. There's a progression going on here. Now, this is really interesting. The meek, in most translations, the meek will inherit the earth. Is that what it says there? The meek will inherit the earth. Uh, this has always troubled me because the poor in spirit inherit the kingdom of heaven. Why do the meek inherit the earth? Uh, you know, are, are the meek less off? <laughs> you know, is it not, not as good? You know, you'd rather be poor in spirit. I think it's a translation error. From a Jewish perspective, it doesn't mean inherit the earth. It means inherit the land. And uh, let me explain. We need to go back again to Psalm 3711. The meek will inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant shalom. And then we find a few verses later, the righteous shall inherit the land and live in it forever. So the Hebrew word is aretz. And Eretz can mean earth, it can also mean land, um, but in the context of the psalm, it refers to the promise of the land of Israel. So it's not just the land, the earth, the planet, the globe, or, or, or dirt. It's, it's the promise that God has given to Israel to dwell in the land. Now imagine how controversial this would be to the elitist leadership who had power and prided themselves on their authority over the Amharits. They were inheriting the land. Do you see? And Yeshua comes in and says, no, no, no. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the ones who don't lord over others, they're the ones who are going to inherit the promises God has given to Israel. And we have to remember that Yeshua is a, a Jew first speaking to Jews. He's telling these first century Jews who, who have lorded over others, who that, that instead they need to lead by their sacrifice. They need to lead like Moses. They, they need to see that the, the ones out there, the people, are the people they need to care for because they're the ones who are part of God's promise. So this is why Yeshua wasn't very popular in some circles. He was challenging these uh, authority structures. Okay, let's move on to uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is where our verses come alive. Ashrei are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So in this world, men and women, we hunger and thirst and crave for all kinds of things. But now we have stepped out of the systems of the world through being reversing the whole structures that we've just talked about. And now we have 
uh, internalized a new craving. Remember when Yeshua says at the, at the well, I have food that you don't know about to his disciples. And they say, what food do you have? Where did you get it? He says, my food is to do the will of my father. That doesn't mean we don't enjoy a good meal. And uh, I think that uh, God has given us, you know, pleasures in this world and in creation all around us. We have to remember that the kingdom of heaven is made for joy and feasting and rejoicing. But what it means, I think, is that the deeper things that motivate us, even the things that motivate us towards that joy, are the things that are of our heavenly Abba's will, our heavenly Father's will. And so we see in the first three ashrays of Messiah, poor in spirit, mourning, and meekness, a striking comparison between the corrupt and oppressive systems of the world versus the values and life in the kingdom of heaven. Yeshua is now asking us to exchange at the deepest level of our identity the world's systems for happiness and success with God's values for life in the kingdom of heaven. And it means that we have to give up hope of finding ashray in ourselves. We have to realize instead that ashray is found in the presence of God, that ashray is found in the presence of the people around you here in your church the people in your families, the people that you are inseparable from. And even more, it means thinking less and less about your own ashray at all. It means becoming agents of the kingdom of heaven and seeking to meet the needs and the ashray of those around you. Ashray are those who care deeply for the spiritual well-being of the lost and spend time helping others to hear, to better live the good news that Yeshua is telling us. Ashray are those who spend time praying and interceding for the suffering. Ashray are those who visit the sick. Ashray are those who sit with the dying. Ashray are those who make meals for those who are in need. Are there times of joy, like a birth, or times of sorrow? Ashray are those who love the children and invest in them downstairs in your Sunday school. Ashray are the mothers who have given everything for their children and the fathers who are committed and present even though it's difficult. Ashray are those who have heard the voice of the Lord calling within and have said, yes, I am willing. Ashray are the merciful, he continues. And what do they receive? Mercy themselves. Over the course of preparing this study, I realized something that hadn't occurred to me before. There's a reason why mercy is right next to righteousness. There are two sides to righteousness, <clears throat> justice and mercy, and they go together. On the one side, hunger and thirst for righteousness in Judaism uh, is a passion for justice, a desire to protect and to care for the oppressed, uh, to shelter them from wicked, and to a passion to see God's righteousness lived out in the world. That's righteousness. But far too often, men lose sight of the deeper values of the kingdom of heaven, and justice can become a tool for our own control, and worse, a weapon for revenge. Justice and mercy need to always go together. And, and many of the religious elite leaders that were in control of the temple, uh, the Eudaioi that we've been talking about, the Pharisees and scribes, they had fallen into this trap. Later in Matthew, Yeshua wields heavy criticisms on these groups. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but you yourselves are not willing to move them with a finger. You see, once you get into the political world, you understand what he's, what he's getting at here. 
For the sake of righteousness, they required men to pay a temple tithe that was so high that they missed the impact it was having on families. And so now poor families couldn't even provide for their parents and they violated the Torah of God because they, of their tradition. And this is, this is not righteous. It's just in some sense, but it's missing mercy. They had neglected mercy. Or consider the woman caught in adultery in John 8. The men drag her to Yeshua and demand justice. She was caught in the act. She must be stoned, according to Leviticus. But Yeshua kneels to the ground and is overcome with mercy. Where was the man? That's part of the commandment, too. What about her broken past? Who were the witnesses? What about the abuse she's seen? What's really going on in her life? And then he says, whichever of you have not sinned, you throw the first stone. And they walk away from the oldest to the youngest. Mercy sees the broken human condition as an integral part of justice and righteousness. Mercy allows us to sit in a mess and love someone who's really blown it in life. Love someone who's really hurting, even though it never should have been that way. Yeshua is the face of God's mercy. So we must seek after righteousness and the things of God, but we must have a, a tilt toward mercy. And we must have a tilt toward compassion. We must lean towards understanding the human condition that life sometimes is just difficult and complex. We've barely covered the first five ashrays of Messiah and, and we, we should close. <laughs> Um, but I hope you've seen that there's something sequential in the list here. Uh, poor in spirit, understanding the human condition deeply. Those people who are poor in spirit are moved to mourn. The comfort experienced through mourning moves a person towards the deeper levels of humility and love that are required for meekness. That love leads a person to become so dependent on God that he or she begins to hunger and to thirst for righteousness, becomes consumed with living God's will. Righteousness demands justice, but justice improperly wielded brings oppression, so one is now required to cultivate mercy, to remember the poor in spirit and the brokenness around them. And the people who make it this far become pure in heart. They no longer have any interest or need for the distractions and the clutter or the temptations of the world because they have too much to do, because now they see all the needs around them. Now they know God's heart. And then the pure in heart become peacemakers in the world. Now they are truly children of God because they partner with his work in the world. Of course, peacemakers will disrupt the old world's systems. And over and over and over through the course of history, we see the peacemaker becomes persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And if you see here at the end, the persecuted inherit the kingdom of heaven, just like the poor in spirit. It cycles back and forth again. They become the poor. These people have found true ashray. They have found joy because they have inherited the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of heaven is filled with joy. So, uh, to close, allow me to 
just to, I like to kind of go back and imagine that we were there in the first century with Yeshua. And uh, if you could just go back and imagine that you were there, one of the disciples <clears throat> in the Galilee, and you're following your beloved master, your rabbi Yeshua, and there are crowds all around you pressing in. And, and it's remarkable that Yeshua has been healing one person after the, another, touching broken people. He looks in their eyes and he heals them. And you see Yeshua, and when you look at him, your heart just fills with love and you just want to be near him. So you take a breath and you look at the distance, look away. The hills are filled with luscious, tall, green grass that shimmers in the sun, and the sky is a crystal blue that casts a striking reflection onto the Sea of Galilee below. And a sweet breeze comes as you hear shouts of joy as a woman is set free from her suffering. And then you look, and Yeshua is no longer there. You turn, and you're looking for him, and you just have to find him. And you see him walking slowly up the path on the mountain. He's alone, and he turns back, and he looks at you. He smiles, and he motions for you to come away with him. Instinctively, you follow. It's as if your bones had no other desire in the world. And you find Yeshua sitting on a rock, waiting for you. And you join your friends, the other disciples, while more crowds approach, and Yeshua smiles, he looks on the people with compassion. He seems to be moved inside, and he looks upward for a moment, and then his eyes welling with tears. He opens his mouth, and he begins to teach. Ashrei are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He wasn't just teaching you how to be a disciple. He was making you a disciple as he taught. Here is the beginner's guide to my kingdom. Do this. You'll find that my kingdom is available to you now. Come to me, and you'll realize that it's always been right here, all around you. You just need me in your heart to see clearly. Yes, you think to yourself. Yes. Yes, I will follow you, my king. Then Yeshua stands up and raises his hands and says to the ever-growing crowds, Now you are the light of the world. Go and live this. Bring my kingdom to the ends of the earth. So with that, thank you everyone uh, for going through this journey with me. And um, I just want to say, if you go to the next slide, if anyone's interested in the series that we're doing, you can follow along uh, with the, uh, it's a YouTube playlist that that takes you there. And uh, we get into some really interesting, interesting material as we're looking at what is this in the first century Judaism? How do we understand it? So um, take a look if you're interested there. And thank you.